0: Hi, I'm Benjamin Studebaker.
1: Hi, I'm Edmund Wilson, and this is Political Theory 101.
0: You know we've been away for a little bit. We've had a bit of a layoff because Edmund has been taking his exams and they've gone so well. Edmund's graduating with a first. He's going to stay at Cambridge and do a master's, and MPhil. I'm so proud of him. I'm so excited for him. Congratulations, Edmund. Well done. Thanks.
1: It's been great to record the podcast, um, you know, as a Parallel to the parallel to the degree too. Um it's been it's been good fun.
0: Yeah. And they put so much pressure on these Cambridge undergraduates at the end of their third year to get these marks that they have to get to stay in the masters. They give conditional offers to the students and they have to hit a particular number where they can't stay. So it's a very high pressure, high stress situation. It's just wonderful that Edmund's managed to get through it. And he's in good hands. He's in good shape. So, really, really wonderful, Edmund. So today, guys, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the sizes of different states and the balances of power within uh, within different paradigms. So we're going to talk a little bit about IR balances of power. Uh, We're going to talk a little bit about state size and how size matters. How the size of different states matters how the relationship between the sizes of different states matters and some of the consequences of all that so this is edmund's idea uh, and i think it's a good idea edmund what are some of the reasons why you wanted to talk about balances of power and the sizes of states today
1: hmm yeah i i thought it would be fun because um There's a lot of discussion, I think, that we've touched on in the previous episode on different theories of international politics. Discussions, among other things, about what it is that really matters in international politics. What it is that motivates states to behave the way that they behave. Are states seeking power? Are they trying to um, follow a certain ideology or set of norms? What is it that's really driving them and motivating them. And I think one of the fun things about balance of power is though it is connected to one of the major theories of international politics, which is realism, it's also uh, got quite a cool historical legacy um, and it touches on a lot of different themes that regardless of, of your position on uh, what it is fundamentally motivate states, the balance of power does seem to prop up quite a lot in uh the history of international politics. Um so it's, you know, both a theoretical and a historical issue. And I think that's what makes it interesting in a way. Um yeah, I think particularly connected to the notion of great powers, because the notion of balance of power is often applied to um relations among the so-called great powers. And um this is quite an interesting uh uh topic to explore, because there have been lots of different ways in which people have tried to uh, define the concept of great power, um, one of which uh, is uh, a term, uh, a definition that John Mersheimer has um, emphasised, which is that great powers are states that, quote, have sufficient military assets to put up a serious fight in an all-out conventional war against the most powerful state in the world. And Mishlema goes on to say that a, a hegemon or hegemon is a state that um, is the only great power in the system. It is, quote, a state that is so powerful that it dominates all the other states in the system. No other state has the military wherewithal to pull up a serious fight against it. And in both these definitions, Mishima has this notion of serious fight. Uh, which is quite interesting, um, because uh, y- you can argue for instance um, as Benjamin and I were chatting about before, before pressing record uh, questions about whether you could argue, for instance, that in the Vietnam War that there was a, a serious fight that the uh, that the uh, North Vietnamese pull up against um, american backed um, South Vietnam. And the answer is that, um, well, on Mearsheimer's definition, it wasn't an all-out conventional war. And so it would be difficult to class North Vietnam as a great power in the absence of an all-out conventional war against the most powerful state in the world, namely at the time, America. Right.
0: And that means that a great power for John Mearsheimer is defined in in a way that's pretty difficult to test because there aren't a lot of all-out conventional wars, especially among very powerful states.
1: Yeah, and, uh, and I guess that raises the question of, um, of what is it that really maintains um, stability among states, and there, there are often two arguments that are offered. One is that there is a balance of power among the great powers in the system. There is a, a rough Equilibrium, um, a kind of a kind of potential symmetry, and if not a symmetry, then at least a kind of balance, where the states, uh, where the great powers, are, on some level, able to uh, pull up serious fights against each other, and this prevents any one of them from trying to dominate the system, and therefore prevents any one of them from trying. But the alternative condition is hegemony, where there's not many great powers but one. And under such a condition, when there is a single hegemonic state, um, the argument is that, well, uh, then, as there is only one great power and nobody can really challenge it, um, there's not likely to be a war unless somebody emerges who can uh, launch another bid for hegemony, or unless a kind of counterbalancing coalition emerges. But in other words, that would mean the hegemony being eroded. When you have a hegemonic state in the system, it means that it's unlikely that anyone's going to uh, dislodge that state from its position without a considerable degree of effort. In other words, both under balance of power and under, under hegemony, the argument is that war is unlikely and that war tends to break out when you're transitioning from one to the other. For instance, when you're transitioning from a system in which there are many great powers, to a system in which there is one, on which one state is among a system of many great powers launching a bid for hegemony. And uh, uh, Misham claims that a lot of the great power wars of the past few hundred years have been in just such a condition where one of the great powers has decided that they want to be top dog, they want to conquer uh, uh, the, the, the system, they don't necessarily want to establish a kind, of, uh, a, a kind of suzerainty, a kind of empire although they might ch- try to do so. But their primary aim is to be the hegemon of the system. That's their most realistic aim. Um, and usually
0: guess- when, when John is talking about that, he's talking about regional hegemony, so not necessarily global hegemony, but regional hegemony. Usually a yeah. state is going for regional hegemony against its rivals within its own region. Uh, I, I, sh- I think it would be useful at this juncture to also bring up the concept of polarity here. Because one yeah. of the arguments that we get in IR theory is about what kind of polarity is most stable. So unipolarity, bipolarity, or multipolarity. Unipolarity is hegemony, as Edmund has been describing. It's yeah. one state one great which power dominates its region or dominates the world potentially, although I think in most cases we're talking about a region. Bipolarity, where you have two states in a rivalry with each other, and so balance of power that is relatively straightforward because there are only two players. So the balance is just the fact that neither of those two players is sure it can beat the other. Uh, And multipolarity, where you have three or more significant players in the same area. And of course, with three or more, there are more variables. There's it's easier for a state to move up or down in a way which might lead to a reconfiguration of sides or alliances. It's easy for diplomatic relations to shift, right? Because with, a, with multipolarity, states can potentially gang up on each other. And this ganging up behavior can be destabilizing. So, very often, In the literature, it's argued that bipolarity or unipolarity is more stable than multipolarity, right? Now, of course, the people who make these arguments often are American or are part of the Western Alliance, right? So if they're American or they're part of the Western Alliance, they have some stake in making an argument that bipolarity or unipolarity is advantageous. Because of course, they are part of United States or the American sphere, right? And since in our present world, the United States is the premier power, it would like it to be the case that we believe that it's best for that to continue, right? So we have to be a little bit suspicious of these arguments because, of course, they come from universities and preponderantly in countries that are part of America's alliance structure, right? And they come especially from Universities within the United States itself. But the point I think still stands that when you do have multipolarity, this ganging up behavior is a potential source of instability and is a potential problem. And we see that in the era of the world wars where we do have this ganging up behavior and alliances of multiple states which change decade to decade. Mm what do you think edmund do you, do you buy the argument that multipolarity is less stable than bipolarity or unipolarity
1: well that the bipolarity is
0: more stable or
1: less.
0: that multipolarity is less stable multi-polarity than bipolarity is, yeah. or unipolarity yes. and then um, uh, then we can get into bi versus uni sh-
1: sure um, yes well um one interesting um uh uh Statistic that Mesheimer brings up in the tragedy of great power politics is a contrast between the number of battle deaths in Europe under different conditions of polarity, under uh, different numbers of great powers. And he, uh, I think he, he, he draws a distinction between balanced and unbalanced multipolarity. And so Mershimer notes that um, in the. Uh, European state system from 1792 to 1990. Um, There were uh, 27 million military deaths under conditions of unbalanced multipolarity, And those periods are 1793 to 1815, 1903 to 1918, and 1939 to 1945. Interestingly, an attentive listener might note that unbalanced multipolarity begins with 1903 rather than 1914. And, uh, this, because thinks that the system tipped into imbalance before war broke out in 1914. Um, but it, uh, it nevertheless took time for that imbalance to lead to war, which might be a, a question which might come up later. Now, under conditions of balanced multipolarity, Mearsheimer notes, uh, million military deaths in the periods from 1792 to 93, 1815 to 1902, and 1919 to 38, the interwar years. And so from Mersheimer's measures uh, based on data from uh, uh, several different books and databases, it looks like balanced multipolarity is, as the balance of power theory predicts, less deadly than unbalanced multipolarity. It seems that that condition, where you have several great powers competing for power, and there is an imbalance of power among those states, is the most deadly
0: condition. I think you could get into a lot of empirical disputes about what distinguishes a period of balanced multipolarity from unbalanced. I think the stronger argument against multipolarity is just the fact that it so often generates periods of imbalance. So if we were to take all of those periods and put them together, right, all of the periods in which it's straightforwardly a multipolar system, we would still get. A lot more battle deaths. We would not be very much aided by adding the periods of balance to the periods of imbalance.
1: Yes, I but, think.
0: Yeah. I think the main argument is just the propensity of multipolarity to generate imbalance. That's the main argument against multipolarity.
1: Yes, because um, under condition of bipolarity in the Cold War from nineteen forty-five to nineteen ninety, Measham notes um, ten thousand military deaths compared to the millions who died under conditions of. Um, both balanced and unbalanced multipolarity. Th- though the number of deaths, it's worth noting for unbalanced multipolarity are, uh, is many times greater than the number of deaths under conditions of balanced multipolarity. And so imbalance is itself a-, a problem, but arguably, as you point out, multipolarity, having a number of great powers in the system, can tend towards imbalance anyway, which is why bipolarity Um, as existed in the Cold War, is taken to be a relatively stabler uh, condition because um, when you only have two states that are great powers, then uh, there is much less uncertainty surrounding the distribution of power. If there are more states, just the calculations that states have to make about other states' capabilities are harder to make. And as uncertainty about the capability of other states is, for Mersheimer, uh, a key cause, or at least catalyst, of war, that increase of uncertainty under multipolarity, which seems quite hard to deny, is, is quite deadly compared to both bipolarity and unipolarity. So I would say on balance that it does look like multipolarity is more deadly than bipolarity and unipolarity. Yeah.
0: Yes, of course if you are a minor power, that's not going to be very comforting to you, is it? You know, just the idea that the world system as a whole is more stable and that there are fewer battle deaths. If you're a minor power that's in the position of getting bullied by great powers, that tends to not be a very persuasive argument. Because if you're a minor power that gets bullied all the time by great powers, you don't have a great stake in the maintenance of the stability of a system, which results in your continuing to be bullied all the time.
1: Yes, yeah. And Meishammer contrasts great power war, war among great powers, with war between great powers and um, minor powers. Um, and um, and those 10,000 military deaths um, um, in the bipolar period, Meishammer attributes to great versus minor power war rather than great power war per se. Um, interestingly so you the- could
0: see why, of course, minor powers would want to be great. Because, even though by becoming great powers they would change the polarity and potentially produce a less stable kind of polarity, in a bipolar or unipolar system, they are so likely to be balanced by the unipole or the bipoles. Yeah, it's kind of. They're so likely to be bullied by those states that they have strong reasons to want to get out of the situation of being a minor power if they can.
1: Yeah. I think it is a bit like the Prisoner's Dilemma because when a state ascends to great power status, that often has a destabilizing effect on the system as a whole, but it is uh, prudent for that particular state that is rising to launch a bid for great power status and similarly for a great power to launch a bid for hegemony because for me I'm a hegemon, is the state with the most security in the system. And so everybody's going to, uh, try to get that position if they can. Uh, the only issue for most states is that they can't and that they have to either um, counterbalance um, states that are launching bids for hegemony, or they can pass the buck to other states to to do the counterbalancing. As uh, as emma argued that uh, Russia did with the rise of Nazi Germany in the 30s um, because of the um, uh, a sizable Polish buffer state, um, Russia was able to um, buck pass and therefore um, pass on its own ability to counterbalance um, it was Germany. And then there's also the condition of bandwagoning, which interestingly, Misha Emet doesn't talk about as much because it kind of goes against the theory of uh, structural realism. If a state is bandwagoning, With a uh, with a more powerful state, then that implies that that state is no longer seeking to maximize its own power. Um, But I think there are conditions where a state has to bandwagon and really has no choice. Um, Though it's possible to interpret those cases as buck passing. Yeah,
0: I I think John's theory is is more plausibly applied to great powers than to minor powers. Mm, Right? Yeah. So minor powers are. In the position of A, of course, if they could, they would like to become great powers, but many minor powers are structured in such a way that becoming a great power is not possible, right? So if you are a minor power that is built around a particular kind of nationalism, right? Let's say that you're Romania, right? So you're committed to having a a nation state for Romanians, right? And you've defined Romanians as people who share a kind of common Romanian culture, speak the language of Romanian, etc., etc., right? So, because Romania is defined in such a limited way, the possibility of enlarging Romania to include larger numbers of people is very limited, right? Because there just aren't that many people who speak Romanian or are plausibly part of Romanian culture. Right. Which is why when a nation state that's based on a very limited conception of, the, of its nation, of its nationality, expands, it can only be expanding to displace other people to take their territory to add to the territory of the state. Right. Uh, it's you can't plausibly, if you have a Romanian national identity, include, say, Bulgars or Czechs or Slovaks in your notion of Romanianness. They could only be added to the state as a subject population, and of course, that would be unstable and difficult to manage, right? So a state like Romania has very limited ability to expand its population, very limited ability to expand its territory, A, because of how it's constructed around this narrow notion of Romanianness, but also B, because it's, it's this narrow notion of Romanianness. there's a lack of population, which means there's a lack of economic output and a, a, a lack of military capacity, right? So a state like that has no real hope of becoming a great power because it's much too small to ever hope to be a great power, right? So in that situation, very often it will be in a position where it's so weak that it also doesn't have any hope of balancing against its neighbors, right? Oftentimes Romania gets into situations where it's so weak relative to its neighbor that all it can do is bandwagon. And this happens when you're dealing with a state, I think, if you're a minor power and you're dealing with a state that's just immensely, immensely more powerful than you, and you're very much in that state's neighborhood, balancing against a state that is way, way, way more powerful than you is a risky strategy, right? Once you have comprehensively lost any competition with a neighboring state, at that point, you kind of have to appease that state because that state is just too strong and can do too many horrible things to you, right? So, if you've noticed as as the Soviet Union broke apart and turned into the Russian Federation and the Russian Federation was weakened in the 90s, a number of Eastern European states which were previously so weak relative to the Soviet Union that they had no choice but to bandwagon with it, now felt they were in a position where they could join a balancing coalition against the Russian Federation. So you see this today in the foreign policy of the Baltic states, like Latvia, Estonia, and so on. These states have joined NATO and are balancing against the Russian Federation, right? They're doing this in part not because Russia is strong, but because Russia is weaker than it used to be. When the Soviet Union existed, it was far too powerful for these uh, minor states to think that it might be possible to preserve their autonomy from the Soviet Union, right? So these states had to join the Warsaw Pact, had to be part of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, didn't really have any possibility of either getting out of the Warsaw Pact or getting independence. And if you notice during the Cold War, the states which tried to get out of the Warsaw Pact, you know, get into it with the Soviet Union and end up in trouble with it, right? So you have, for instance, Hungary's attempt to leave the Soviet sphere in the 50s, which gets crushed by Soviet tanks, Right. So there's a lot of risk in trying to balance against a great power that has just that much of an advantage. And I think that uh, oftentimes theorists like Mearsheimer neglect a little bit the situation of the minor power, right? In in part because John Mearsheimer is a professor at University of Chicago in the United States. He's most interested in thinking about American grand strategy and the situation of very powerful states, right? of, of great powers we don't tend to get as much of a discussion of the foreign policy of very very weak states in part because those discussions insofar as they happen tend to occur in those states in the languages that those states speak and because those states are minor powers it's rather unlikely that we would speak those languages and therefore be in position to participate in those debates right most mm-hmm. of us do not speak a lot of languages that are spoken in minor powers. right? So uh, there is, of course, foreign policy discussion of how to manage the situation of being a minor power, but it's not talked about very much. And oftentimes, I think in minor powers, the state has a stake in representing a minor power as being more powerful or more secure than it is, because if the local population really were aware of just how precarious and weak a minor power is it, it would be a kind of unsettling experience and so a lot of the leaders of minor powers go out of their way to project strength over and above what the state is really capable of projecting rhetorically as a way of reassuring the population or as mm-hmm. a way of cementing legitimacy for themselves internally right so if you look at a lot of these eastern european states all of which are very tiny and very weak relative to their neighbors a lot of these states have leaders who are extremely aggressive in their rhetoric, Who, you know, like for instance, Orban in Hungary, who talks up Hungary, right? Hungary is this tiny little state. It has no possibility of expansion. It's defined itself in an entirely too narrow way to ever entertain expanding or becoming powerful or a significant player, right? Uh, but Orban is going to talk up Hungary all the time, because by talking up Hungary, he improves his own popularity so we're not necessarily going to get a very realistic discussion in hungary of the real position of hungary as a very minor power in the european region right now behind closed doors certainly i'm sure that does get discussed in hungary but it's not an angle that the government wants to emphasize when it talks about its international situation to its population, right? No government wants to project weakness in a frank conversation about just how much weaker it is than its neighboring states. It, it will try to convince its population that somehow it could preserve the state's independence in any situation. Of course, it cannot, right? Uh, and I think in some Western European states that are very small, like Belgium or Luxembourg, there, there's a more realistic discussion in those states, right? Uh, but also in a lot of those Western European states, there's a little bit of a fantasy about the degree to which the powerful states are mature and and respect them and respect international norms. So in, a, in some of the liberal democracies in the West, instead of saying, oh, we're strong, we could potentially deal with it if some other state came and tried to bully us, instead of misleading the population in that respect, you can mislead the population and say, all of the states around us are are." good liberal democracies that would never do anything to hurt us, right? So I think you 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 see this a lot in separatist cases. So for instance, in Scotland, the Scottish National Party often discusses what would happen if Scotland got independence in a way that is a bit fantastical. They they kind of imagine that Scotland would relate to other states in the European region as if Scotland were still the UK, right? And they're not entirely realistic about how other states would respond to the extremely large power disparity that they would enjoy vis-a-vis scotland right so of course once scotland is out of the uk then the rump uk would be a lot more powerful than scotland and would no longer relate to scotland as if scotland were part of it right so in disputes about say uh, oil rights in disputes about Say whether Scotland gets to join the European Union or whether Scotland gets to retain the pound or whether Scotland gets influence or say over the monetary policy which governs the pound, right? In all of those debates, the rump UK would be very keen to use its power advantage vis-a-vis Scotland to push Scotland around and bully it and not give it what it wants, right? Uh, similarly, states like France or Spain would look at an independent Scotland as a possible harbinger of what might happen to them right? Because both France and Spain have significant separatist movements. The Cataloons in Spain, the Basques in both Spain and France, Brittany in France, right? There are a number of these separatist movements in those states. So, so those states would be very keen to make an example out of Scotland to demonstrate to their own home regions that independence is not a good option, right? So these states would not treat Scotland in a super benign, we're all friends, we're all liberal democracies. Let's sing "Kumbaya" kind of way. They would definitely look to exploit their power advantages over Scotland to extract things from Scotland when they can, uh, and also to to treat Scotland as an exemplar for home audiences. Right. Uh, so that isn't really the narrative of Scottish independence that the SNP pushes. The SNP wants to suggest that. Because everybody's a liberal democracy in the European Union, Scottish sovereignty would be respected, and everybody would be nice to Scotland, and everybody would treat Scotland as an equal partner. Uh, and of course, this is a language that the great power, that a lot of the larger powers themselves like to use. They like to say, "Oh yes, we respect the sovereignty of other states," et cetera, et cetera. But this is a kind of selective language, right? So a, a large power will emphasize sovereignty in part to try to prevent other large powers from inv- intervening in its own affairs, right? So say for instance when it comes to ele- electoral inter- interventions, the United States will say, oh of course we should respect the integrity of other states elections, right? Russia should not interfere with elections in the United States, right? But of course if the United States gets into a situation where it has the power to influence the internal domestic politics of another state to its advantage, the United States absolutely absolutely pursues that advantage, right? And has done so uh, all over the world many, many times in many, many ways, right? Uh, Mm. So this language of state sovereignty is a kind of language that states selectively employ when convenient, right? When it's convenient to their own interests. But In practice, the power disparity between states absolutely influences how states interact with each other, right? And I think a lot of minor powers try to sell this language of state sovereignty, try to sell the language of the United Nations and, and states having rights to make their populations feel more secure and to generate support for independence or for autonomy, when really there's a very real sense in which... These states are in a precarious position, are much weaker than their neighbors, are very likely to be exploited and bullied, right? And, and the trouble is that the local elites often have a personal interest in a state becoming independent or a state having autonomy, right? Because if you're running a small state, that's a very lucrative position to be in, right? Uh, if you're running Hungary, if you're running Poland, that's a very lucrative position to be in. Uh, you are able to benefit yourself and your friends a lot by running a state like that as an independent state, right? If you were part of some other state, you'd be subject to that other state's laws. That other state could potentially stop you from doing all kinds of uh, expropriative things, right? If If you were in a larger state, then these local elites would be subject to some kind of central management, right? But when you have an independent minor power, the fact that the minor power has independence to some degree insulates the local elite from being messed with by foreign states, only to a degree, right? So if you're running Bulgaria, you can be extremely corrupt and you can siphon huge amounts of money off for yourself, right? Uh, Other states will Push you around when it comes time to negotiate trade deals with, say, Bulgaria, or when it comes time to uh, talk about borders or military bases with Bulgaria. Bulgaria will be pushed around and effortlessly by other states. Right? Same goes for Romania. Same goes for any of these European, Eastern European states. Right? But the leaders of the of these states will often turn a blind eye to the personal corruption of the leaders of minor powers, right? The great powers don't care if the leaders of minor powers rip their own populations off and get rich. They don't care about that. All they care about is that when push comes to shove, the leaders of these minor powers make trade deals which favor the great powers, make security deals which favor the great powers, right? So I think very often the, the kind of uh, local bourgeoisie in a minor power have a stake in independence. That the state as a whole, the population as a whole, doesn't really have. If you think in terms of economic and security interests, right? But because there uh, there are personal advantages to the local bourgeoisie for pursuing independence, these guys will craft narratives about how independence or more autonomy or more sovereignty will benefit the rest of the population, and these narratives are rarely true. Right? At, at, at least they're rarely true beyond a kind of superficial cathartic uh, cultural representation, right? So the Polish leader or the Hungarian leader can make a point to mirror the cultural practices of the Hungarian population or the Polish population back at that population in a way which is, is cathartically satisfying, right? But that's going to be in lieu of the additional economic influence and security influence, which that population would have if they were part of a larger state that had more weight in international negotiations, right? So to think of it this way, right? If all of the states of the former Austria-Hungary were part of one big federal republic at this stage, right? I'm not saying revive Austria-Hungary as a monarchy, but if they were all part of a federal republic, right? And if that had somehow been the workable arrangement that had developed out of the collapse of the Habsburgs rather than this patchwork quilt of individual states, Uh, then that state of the the federation of the former Austria-Hungary would be quite large. It would be competitive in size and scale with Germany and Spain and Italy and France, right? A state of that scale would have a lot of weight in European negotiations. It would be a state that people would have to take note of and have to pay attention to, right? Instead, it's a patchwork of states, all of whom hate each other because of a century of conflict, right? So it's a patchwork of states that don't get along with each other, that struggle to cooperate with each other, that can easily be pitted against each other by the neighboring larger powers, that don't have a lot of economic influence, don't have a lot of military influence, right? Similar thing, if you had taken you know, the former Soviet Union and turned it into some kind of nice federal republic. States like the Baltic states, Ukraine, uh, they would have a lot more influence in European affairs. They'd have a lot more negotiating leverage and weight, right? But once you break these states off and make them nominally autonomous, they're not really autonomous because they're minor powers. So when push comes to shove, they're not able to get what they want in economic and security negotiations, right? They get bullied and end up being forced to take rules from international institutions both economic rules and security rules, right? So they don't have any meaningful sovereignty or autonomy in those critical senses, right? But because they have this nominal independence and because that enables the leadership to project a kind of cultural catharsis, the populations tend to continue to support the independence of these states, even though it tends to mean that they are economically underdeveloped. That their living standards don't rise very quickly, and that they are subject to periodic instability when the neighboring states intervene in their security affairs. Right. So I think uh, this is a bit of a of a digression, but I just kind of want to talk a wanted to talk a little bit about the situation of minor powers because I think it's often overlooked, and I think a lot of the time right now in a lot of the more powerful states there are movements of people who are saying, "What's the big deal?" If we broke up, you know, the UK into several smaller states, or if we broke up France into several smaller states, or if we broke up the United States into several smaller states, you know, there's international law. Wouldn't other states have to respect our sovereignty and autonomy? Right. And this is a kind of of wishful thinking that I think develops out of people enjoying the benefits of living in a great power or at least a, a larger regional power like the UK or Spain for long enough that they have kind of forgotten what life is really like for people in small weak states and what the situation really is like for small weak states and just how much small weak states get bullied and how little international politics really has to do with everybody respecting everybody else's sovereignty and autonomy.
1: It's perhaps also worth noting the role of, uh, states between, uh, as you've between the roles of great powers and minor powers, these kind of major powers can play quite an important role in international politics. I guess uh, the 19th century balance of power system was uh, sometimes referred to as the Age of Metternich after the uh, Austrian uh, ambassador Metternich's role in the uh, instrumental role in the uh, Congress of Vienna, which brought a close to the Napoleonic Wars. And instituted the nineteenth-century um, uh, partial restoration of the eighteenth-century balance of power system, but in a way that was, uh, in some respects, more successful, uh, though with notable exceptions such as the Crimean War and the uh, Franco-Prussian War, and uh, and of course uh, Metternich's role was possible um, after uh, the last Holy Roman Emperor Francis II foresaw that it was likely that Napoleon would dissolve the Holy Roman empire as indeed he did. And so Francis the second created the Austrian empire, which, um, uh, which, um, Metternich was a diplomat for, um, uh, and, you know, and Austria played that, uh, crucial balancing role in the 19th century. And it was, uh, of course, um, in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, that the seeds of the First World War um, were sown in in 1914, with um, the assassination of Franz Ferdinand. So, I, I guess Austria could could be counted as a great power in the 19th century. I think a lot of people do, um, but at the very least, it wasn't um, uh, the most. Uh, powerful states, say on the level with, on the level with Germany or Britain at the beginning of the twentieth century, and uh, so I, I think there is quite a crucial role for some of these middle powers in maintaining, uh, in acting as what uh, Adam Watson calls kind of the tongue of the balance. These crucial states that provide a kind of balancing role uh, that is distinct from the, from the kind of quasi hegemonic role of great powers. And the uh, and the more uh, subordinate role of minor powers; uh, th- these middle powers do provide a crucial, uh, a, a, a crucial kind of lubrication of the wheels of international power politics. Um,
0: uh, yeah, you know. it's it's kind of difficult to discern the boundary between great power and middle power during the. The World War One period, because, of course, you'll find a lot of people who would classify Austria, Hungary and even the Ottoman Empire as great powers at that Mm, time.
1: Certainly. Yeah,
0: I think I think it's more clear cut if we were to say to take a contemporary example. I think it's very clear at this point that the UK, France and Germany are not great powers. Right. They are not states that are potential competitors with the United States. Right. Uh, But they are certainly a lot more powerful than, say, Latvia or Hungary, right? Uh, Yeah. I, I think that when you're in this middle power position, you have a lot more ability to, by buddying up with other states, play a significant role, right? So, Spain, if Spain were by itself and Spain didn't have any friends, it wouldn't be very consequential. Same goes for Italy, same goes for France, right? But if you... Have uh, If you're a middle power, then it's conceivable that with a, a, a realistic handful of additional middle powers, as a block, you would be substantial, right? Yeah. So the, the strategy of, of the European Union was to put together these middle powers in a substantial block, right? And by putting them together in a substantial block, those states could have the kind of influence with which a great power has without having to entirely federate or to, to form a unitary state, right? Now, this has in practice been a difficult thing to to do because these middle powers to have that influence often have to pull their power and resources in a way that their sovereignty obstructs. Yeah. Right? So no. the fact that they've been unwilling to go all the way to a federal republic means that their ability to actually pull resources to meet global or international demands is limited that very often in a crisis they're still dependent on the United States economically and militarily, right? Mm. They're not really able to establish an independent military deterrent and they're not really able to establish a functioning economy that doesn't have to interface with the Federal Reserve, right? Yeah. So I think that these middle powers our players, they can, by coming together, have influence. But at the end of the day, if they, if they aren't able to actually form a federation, I think what we've seen in the experiment of the European Union over the last 20 or 30 years is that there's a limit to how far you can get with middle powers cooperating with each other. Right? Yeah. Uh, now, certainly a, a middle power could, in the event of a great power war, be a useful place for one of the great powers to park stuff. So for instance, Britain during World War II is a useful place for the United States to park things for the purposes of moving them onto continental Europe, right? Uh, Before the Normandy invasion, the United States parks a lot of stuff in the United Kingdom to be used in the invasion of Normandy, right? So I think a a middle power is a, a, can be with the help of a great power, a secure place to park things for the purposes of an invasion. Right. But that's a, a rather limited role for a minor, for, for a middle power to have. Right. Mm. It's a ri- rather limited role. And I think that very often in British politics, there's an inflation of the role of the UK in international politics, in part, because a lot of people in the UK don't realize the degree to which the UK has lost influence. Don't realize how much weaker the UK is relative to, uh, when their parents or grandparents were children. Uh, And I think part of that's because the living standard of the ordinary person in Britain has not declined during the period of Britain's relative decline, right? Uh, And part of that is because Britain got into a relatively favorable alliance structure with the United States and uh, with the rest of the European Union, right?
1: Mm. I I was talking about this. uh, A friend of the podcast said that... um... Uh, What about uh, Britain's uh, soft power? Um, What do you think about soft power, Benjamin?
0: Well, I think if you are able to have personal influence with the leadership of a great power because you get along with the leader well, you know the leader well, right? If you're able to be an advisor effectively to the leader of a great power, then that Mm. does give State a certain amount of influence. But notice it's the kind of influence that the leader of that state would have if that leader of the state just served in, say, the cabinet. Yeah. Right? So, like Tony Blair, for instance, had a certain amount of influence over George W. Bush because they had a good working relationship. But that Mm. relationship is not, it doesn't give Tony Blair more influence over the U.S. president than he would have if he were, say, Secretary of State or Secretary of Defense, and simply quite effective in that role, right? So most of the time, at best, temporarily based on a a personal relationship, the leader of a middle power can have the kind of influence over the leader of a great power, which an especially persuasive courtier would have, right? But I don't think that's really the same as having permanent influence reliable influence of the kind that one state would want to have structurally over another right the uk mm. doesn't really have a permanent uh, ability to persuade the american president to do things that ability is highly contingent on the working relationship between the prime minister of the uk and the president of the united states right so if you've noticed over the years there's so much hand-wringing in the british press over whether or not the prime minister Gets along with the president of the United States, whether the president of the United States seems to like the prime minister. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So there was, for instance, a lot of worrying that Barack Obama did not like David Cameron. Right. Mm. And it became very evident that Barack Obama did not like David Cameron. He said many disparaging things about David Cameron in public that we know about. Right. Uh, So because Barack Obama did not like David Cameron, Britain could not really exercise any soft power influence over the United States, right? Because mm-hmm. the administration looked at the British leader as not somebody that they're interested in hearing from, right? Mm. So that can change very quickly. You talk about it, you know, people talk about a special relationship, but the mechanics of the special relationship have to be the prime minister talking to the president, or at least you know, the foreign secretary talking to the State Department and there being a good relationship, which is so contingent on the particular people involved at the time and also so contingent on the particular issue and whether the issue is one where the interests of the UK and the United States are close enough that the United States is likely to be interested in hearing from the UK in the first instance. Uh, right?
1: I- interestingly, there might be more of a case for uh, a special relationship in terms of political economy than international security uh not only because um Reagan and Thatcher and arguably prior to them uh Carter and Callaghan were the first leaders to embark on the so-called neoliberal revolution but also cuz um um uh just as uh, sh- shortly after uh the uh Glass-Steagall legislation was repealed in the US producing a dynamic interplay between um uh, commercial and investment banking uh, in in America, that catalyzed uh, catalyzed the subprime uh, mortgage bubble, um, but also um, uh, uh, around ar- around that time in the early in, in the early two thousands, uh, after Glastigal was repealed in the late nineties, um, uh, Blair was um, busy uh, rejecting efforts to uh, try to. Uh, uh, try to re-regulate finance, um, and as a partial consequence of this, uh, a majority of the uh, some of the most uh, dangerous uh, financial products that catalyzed the 08 crash were manufactured through the City of London. And I think it might be worth at this point raising the historical political economy of Britain, because uh, one of the reasons why Britain was the first state to uh, embark on the so called uh, uh, bourgeois revolution um, after the Glorious Revolution of uh, 1688 and the establishment of the Bank of England in 1694. Was that, uh, well, the Glorious Revolution put on the throne of England uh, William of Orange from the Netherlands. And there are a number of authors, in- including, as it happens, Marx, who claim that the Dutch Republic. Uh, after the the Dutch revolt against Spain in the uh, late 16th century, uh, was the really the first state to embark on something like a bourgeois um, revolution due to the Netherlands' role in international trade. And I think that uh, in discussions of the balance of power, it seems that trade is kind of skipped over. Um, and, and perhaps as a result, the role of middling powers uh, like the Netherlands um, And perhaps um, um, a country like um, Germany today uh, are often skipped over because they might not have a massive military capacity, but they have a considerable economic capacity that makes a difference in international politics. For instance, um, in the Eurozone crisis, uh, Germany was instrumental um, in the uh, crisis fighting or uh, not. And uh, and in the... uh, uh, you know in, in the subsequent years uh in the relationship between uh germany and european union institutions has been uh, quite significant and uh, in in some ways as uh, uh, not quite as significant as brexit but the uh german constitutional court's um rejection during the 2020 uh, uh pandemic um began of the uh, of the ECB's uh, first uh, round of uh, or first couple rounds of quantitative easing, called into question the role of uh, the role of QE um, uh, by the ECB, um, and this caused a lot of fuss at the time. I'm not sure how much further this dispute will escalate, but it doesn't seem like it's necessarily going to go away. Um, and I think this is largely attributable to the. Uh, Disproportionate power of Germany economically in the EU, uh, despite its lack of uh, military power. And I think we could see um, a similar dynamic playing in the 70s and 80s when America was very, very worried about the economic rise of Japan, uh, because, of course, it was because of Pearl Harbor that America entered the war. um, uh, And uh, so when Japan started rising economically again, this was raising questions of whether Japan would try to convert its economic power back into military power again. And even if not, whether Japan would rise to a level economically where it would be capable of displacing America as the uh, hegemonic anchor of the international economy. And since Japan's economic flatlining since the 90s, of course, these fears have. Uh, gone away. Uh, and I think, interestingly, yeah. this made America a bit complacent about the rise of China. America let China into the WTO in 2001 uh, quite easily. Um, and I think this might be in part attributable to the fact that uh, 10 years earlier, uh, Japan's economic growth flatlined, started flatlining. And so it looked like China, there were limits to China's growth just as there were limits to Japan's growth. And I think, though there may well be such limits to China's economic growth, it looks like uh, China's uh, very large population isn't likely to grow much further. And if anything, there's a potential for a decline yeah, in population. Yeah, so there are a couple of things in there
0: I, I want to talk about before I forget about them, because there's so much in that, in what you've just said. That was very rich. So I think that. You, you make this point about economic influence. I, I think that's very important. I don't think economic influence is really soft power. I think that that is... No, yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's a type of, of hard power. Yeah, I agree. In large yeah. part because economic influence is so much influence over the domestic influence of classes, right? And that is, of course, a serious concern yeah. for... Elites within states. Elites within states are worried about their influence over domestic politics. They're worried about their influence, uh, not just in the domestic politics of what we might think of as their home country, but also their influence in the domestic politics of other countries in which they might potentially do business, right? So American uh, oligarchs and, and companies are interested not just in their competition with Japan from a trade standpoint, but also in their ability to influence affairs in other states around the world where they might have trade interests at stake, where uh, Japanese traders might also be interested in, uh, in, in going. And the same goes for Chinese Chinese merchants, Chinese oligarchs, right? So I think there's, there's definitely an economic angle to this, uh, but I, I, think, I think it's not really soft power, right? No, yeah, uh, when I think of yeah. soft power, I think of soft power as a kind of Influence you have because people like or admire you or because they get along with you. Yeah, right. Yeah,
1: yeah. So therefore
0: yeah. inherently rather fragile. Whereas economic power is quite quite a serious thing, although it it can be disrupted by war. Perhaps you and the so way I, you
1: were interpreting soft power was like how you've discussed patronage in the past as a kind of correlate to the selective processes of war and trade.
0: Yeah, yeah, more like more like patronage. Yeah. yeah. The, the other point I wanted to make is with respect to Germany. I think Germany is an interesting case because Germany has economic power, which is predicated on an alliance with the United States, right? So because these Western European states are part of NATO, they can't fight with each other because they're part of an alliance structure, right? They share military intelligence with each other. If one of them tried to fight the other, it would be very obvious to all involved what was going on and the other states in NATO would put a stop to it, right? Because of this, the European states know that they can't fight Germany, right? That's not a way they can solve a problem that they have with Germany. And this enables Germany to use its economic leverage without having to develop military capacity as an additional tool, right? Mm. Now, if the United States were to pull out of Europe, and if NATO were to collapse, I think that there would be a need for Germany to develop a military capability yeah. alongside its economic capability to back that economic capability up with military capacity. And yeah. I think this is another case where if you get into an arrangement that's a peaceful, stable arrangement for, and you stay in that arrangement for a long time, you forget about why that arrangement works. And so yeah. you start to go, do I need these things? That are bedrock foundational elements of the arrangement. You go, well, why do I actually need these things? Wouldn't we have a set of norms or a set of of, of norms of behavior at this point that would just be self-perpetuating? Do I actually need the structural foundation which gives rise to the set of norms, right? There's a kind of of thought here, a, a constructivist thought, that the norms have taken on a life of their own, that we don't actually need the things that are foundational for the norms to continue. So in the case of the Western European peace, the Western European peace is founded on the United States, leads this NATO alliance. It has military bases throughout Western Europe. It forces all of the European states to share intelligence with each other and to cooperate with each other. And if any of these European states appears to be threatening this... Balances against that state, it overthrows that state's government, it, it does whatever it needs to do to keep this going, right? If the United States doesn't do that, then suddenly these European states have much less basis for trusting each other, mm. much less basis. So there's, there's kind of this assumption that there's a set of norms that have grown out of NATO that would just continue. And it's, it's not at all clear that that's the case. The United States makes these states share military information with each other. It makes these states uh, aware that if any of them were to try to do anything militarily, they would all get into a lot of trouble. Uh, it puts all of these states under its nuclear umbrella, right? Uh, you know even with that, France and Britain insist on having their own nuclear deterrence. Mm. The Germans insist on having u s nuclear weapons physically in Germany so that the Germans can launch them in the event that Germany is attacked, right so even with the NATO arrangement. There's a limit to the amount of trust among these states, even within that arrangement, right? If you took that arrangement away, that trust would very likely break down and the economic power of Germany would need a complement, right? Economic power works best for a state when that state can complement that economic power with military power. If you can't complement economic power with military power, then the states that have military power can use that military power to disrupt the trade that is necessary for a state to have economic power. Yes. Right?
1: But in now, the, same, in the uh, same way a state uh, with economic power can, as Mersheimer emphasizes, translate that uh, economic power into military power, as China is doing.
0: Right. So similarly, the fact that Germany has a lot of economic power means that if Germany wanted to be a military power, it could develop a significant amount of military capacity relatively quickly, not as much as the United States, but certainly... As much, if not more, than France or Britain, right? Uh, so you know, it could do that. And conversely, uh, states that have military capacity can intervene in, in trade. Now, the leverage that you're hoping to have if you're a state like Germany is that if a state uses its military power to disrupt trade, that economically would be quite disruptive. And the economic cost of that might make it difficult for that state to manage its internal affairs, right? So mm. if you are the United States and you're negotiating with China, the reason that the United States doesn't use its military capacity to just throttle Chinese trade, apart from the fact that that would be a kind of horrible and awful thing to do, is that the United States is deeply worried that if it were to disrupt the trade relationship, it would take an economic hit that would be so large that the government would struggle to win elections, right? And would therefore struggle to remain in power. Similarly. Mm-hmm. China is reluctant to try to play games because if there's disruption to its economy, it could face a legitimacy crisis, right? Modern states, very much their legitimacy is very much connected to economic performance, right? For all of the talk about representation and liberty and equality, there is also still a real sense in which if the government seems to be profoundly incapable of managing basic elements of life, it's going to lose legitimacy. And it's going to have a hard time maintaining that legitimacy without taking very drastic steps. If you look at what North Korea, for instance, has to do, what the regime in North Korea has to do to remain in power, given how poor the living standards are in North Korea consistently and relative to its neighbors, the lengths North Korea has to go to try to prevent the ordinary North Korean from paying attention to that disparity by Preventing the ordinary North Korean from even having basic information about what's occurring b- beyond the borders of North Korea—that's you know, the kind of drastic, drastic measures which a state that has categorically failed to provide for a decent standard of living relative to its neighbors you know, has to has to undertake to maintain some veneer of legitimacy. Yeah. I, so I, yeah, I, I think that those performance indicators matter a lot, and yeah. uh, I, I definitely think economic performance matters. But a middle power like Germany, if it doesn't have military capacity, it's reliant on a state that does.
1: Yeah, yeah. And of course, we saw this a version of this dynamic of um, a, a decline in economic power or a, a problem for the economic system leading to a reliance on a, a combination of political repression and military expansion in the 30s, which followed as um, Charles Kindleberger notes in The World in Depression, um, quote, the lack of leadership in providing discount facilities, anti-cyclical lending, or an open market for goods rendered the system unstable. And Kindleberger argues that the reason Why the so called public goods of of spending and lending in times of crisis were not provided um, was that, uh, quote, um, the explanation of this book is that the 1929 depression was so wide, so deep, and so long because the international economic system was rendered unstable by British inability and United States' unwillingness to assume responsibility for stabilising it in three particulars, maintaining a relatively open market for distressed goods, providing countercyclical long-term lending, and discounting in crisis. And I think we can uh, say that uh, the Great Depression, uh, some degree of confidence, was you know, perhaps the uh, key catalyst of the rise of fascism in Germany, and uh, insofar as it brought down the system of international trade and financial integration, the Great Depression paved the way for an era of of economic segmentation, leading to military confrontation among the states of Europe. Um, and so in that way, I think that um, you, know, you can contrast this with the way in which the US responded to the 2008 financial crisis um, by providing an immense amount of, um, you know, by, by historical standards at least, um, even though it didn't live up to quite the expectations that some people were hoping of uh, counter-cyclical um, spending and an even greater amount of a uh, quantitative easing um, by the Federal Reserve, and uh, and uh, and lending, and also providing of uh, states with deficiency in uh, dollars with uh, w- with dollar reserves through dollar swap lines, and linking back to what you were saying earlier about Hungary. Hungary was one of the states that got virtually no um, dollar swap lines um, compared to the Euro area as a whole, which. At its uh, height, was drawing on uh, uh, 314 billion uh, US dollars in swap lines, and Japan, which had 128 um, billion dollars in swap lines. Um, uh, South Korea was one of the other states uh, that uh, the US quickly set up swap lines with, um, in fear of a confrontation, um, as Adam Tooze argues between. Uh, South Korea and the IMF. If South Korea were to reject the IMF's um, terms on on, on, on on a deal, and so it does seem that the not only does the most powerful state in the system, uh, the the central and great power, the the kind of regional military hegemon, and to some degree a global economic hegemon in the form of the USA, plays not only a key role in stabilising the system of international security, but also in providing an anchoring role for the international political economy. Um, so in other words, not just um, as a ruler of states, but also as an anchor of trade, the leading power in the system is quite crucial in providing that kind of unipolar stability. And perhaps there's the question of, is that a stabler kind of system from a more bipolar system where you've got two states um, in a rough equilibrium with one another? Um, Of course, then there's the question of whether the Cold War really was um, uh, truly bipolar given the uh, relatively greater strength of the uh, United States. Um, But I... I I think it seems at least to some degree uh, ambiguous which of those two forms are more stable. I think the one thing that we can say about unipolarity is that maybe it's good so long as it lasts, but it never lasts.
0: I I think this is good. I kind of wanted to come back to this same point as we finish up. So I think that unipolarity when it's working is certainly the most stable because an extremely powerful state has this anchor state capacity to bail out the system during a crisis and to keep things going when otherwise they'd be falling apart, right? However, I think with unipolarity, you have this fat and happy problem, right? And the fat and happy problem is that the unipole creates so much stability that gradually everybody everybody's thinking atrophies. Everybody during a period of unipolarity forgets how it is that we have stability in the first instance, forgets how the stability came about, forgets about the fraught process by which it was generated, and starts to naturalize the stability and take it for granted, right? Mm. And therefore, everybody starts to borrow against the stability to try to get away with doing things that potentially undermine the stability Uh, you know on the assumption that there's so much stability that stability is a fundamental fact now that everybody's become morally better than they used to be everybody's just a better person states are better everybody's better and that therefore the bad old things that used to happen can't happen anymore right and as a result of this fat and happy stuff yeah, you know, For one, the Unipol doesn't do what's necessary to preserve its status as the unipole. It gets complacent about its hegemony. It doesn't do what would be necessary to prevent itself from being challenged by a rising state like, say, China, right? You've made that point. Another thing that happens is that the other states in the system that are allied to the Unipol become fat and happy too. They benefit from being part of the unipole system and they start to think they don't need the unipole, that they could enjoy the same benefits without the unipole's presence, right? Uh, The states that never fall into the fat and happy problem are the states that the unipole has always kept at arm's length, that the unipole has always treated as not really good states, right? States like China, states like uh, minor powers, uh, like Hungary, these states have always had a hot and cold relationship with the Unipol. You know, they've they've always had some issues with getting the Unipol on side. And because they don't always have the Unipol in their corner, they're more aware of what the costs are of not having not being the Unipol or not having the Unipol on your side. Right? And for that reason, these states are of course, of course, heavily revisionist and their attitude to the international system. If you're China, you want to be a great power so that you are not subject to the domination of the unipole. If you're a minor power, you want there to be more than one great power so that you can play them off against each other and potentially get stuff out of that competition. A lot of minor powers that are not local to China very much like the idea of having a return to bipolarity because they would be able to negotiate with more strength because of that possibility of saying well if you don't give me what i want i might work with the other one i might work with the other power right so i think that minor powers that are not part of the uh, that, that are not as friendly with the united states that uh, and especially that are completely outside of its alliance system, completely outside of like Iran, say, or or North Korea. Uh, These states are very, very attuned to what the advantages are of having bipolarity or of themselves becoming that bipolar second power, right? And I think as the Cold War illustrates, the second power doesn't have to be enormously powerful to make a big difference. The Soviet Union was much weaker than the United States throughout the Cold War. But the Soviet Union had the capacity to enable a minor power to economically develop significantly without having to trade with the United States for a period of several decades, right? So a state like Cuba could, by being part of the Soviet sphere, develop its economy substantially in the 70s and 80s without having to be buddied up with the United States, right? So it gave those minor powers an alternative, right? And the prospect of this second power potentially displacing the first power disciplines the first power and prevents it from getting fat and happy, right? So when the United States is thinking, if I get fat and happy, the Soviet Union is going to beat me, right? Then the United States is much more careful in the decisions that it takes. It's much more aware of the fundamental precarity of its position, right? And so it behaves in a a more rigorous way. It takes decisions more carefully, right? After the collapse of the Soviet Union, the United States, to a large degree, became fat and happy, and many other states around the world also became fat and happy and began indulging in all kinds of fantasies about what's possible. And at some point, those fantasies will come to an end. At some point, it will become clear to Western Europeans that you couldn't just kick the United States out of Europe and have everything continue on as it is at some point it will become clear to uh, americans that you can't just uh, let let trade with china develop and let the chinese state develop and expect the international system to work the same way it always has the question is when this stuff gets realized what are these states going to be in position to do are these states still going to have the capacity to compete because one of the things that starts to happen when you get fat and happy is that you become very focused on your internal politics because you don't face an external threat. And that means oftentimes you'll do stuff for the purposes of securing legitimacy at home that potentially compromise your ability to compete internationally, right? And I think one of the things you can observe in American politics is how much American politics and the working of American institutions is based around getting legitimacy at home, getting people to vote, getting people to show up, right? So much of American political debates are about creating antagonisms that drive voter turnout, that are about about, uh, pleasing different constituencies of domestic voters, right? Because the United States doesn't really perceive itself to face global threats, it can focus very much on local elites competing with each other. The local elites can focus very much on that intrastate competition. And as a result, there's a lot of gridlock in American politics driven by intense conflict within the American elite. And that gridlock potentially prevents the United States from doing the things that it would need to maintain its position as the Unipol. And so, for instance, we have this debate recently about infrastructure in the United States where the clash between the republicans and the democrats and that intra-elite conflict has made it difficult even for the united states to maintain its infrastructure so the american society of civil engineers say that the united states needs to spend something like two and a half trillion over the next 10 years and they'll be very lucky if they can get an additional 500 billion in infrastructure funding right so much of the infrastructure package immediately fell prey to partisan. Intra-elite wrangling over which particular kinds of infrastructure projects should be funded or how they should be paid for, and this kind of wrangling makes it difficult for the United States to maintain the kind of economy which is necessary going forward to potentially see off the competition from China. Mm. Uh, And and so I think it it while unipolarity is the most stable when it works, similar to multipolarity, it has a tendency to eat its own tail and wreck itself um Mm. and in many ways the most tragic thing that ever happened to the united states from from its own point of view is that the soviet union fell and deprived it of a reason to be disciplined
1: yeah and this reflects the argument that makes in 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 his book the great delusion um which argues that the um the liberal idea of economic interdependence without having to worry about geopolitics is is, is indeed a delusion. Re- reflecting a, a Norman Angle's a contrasting case in The Great Illusion in 1911, uh, that, quote, the wealth, prosperity, and well-being of a nation depend in no way upon its political power. Uh, and Angle deduces the conclusion that um, Uh, no nation could gain any advantage by the conquest of the British colonies. And he goes on to uh, claim that conquest in general is something that, because it's economically inexpedient, is illusory uh, and therefore a a falsehood which should be uh, eliminated from the calculations of states. And uh, of course, whether it's an illusion or not that conquest can Yield economic fruits for a state. Uh, the states of Europe nevertheless went to war three years later. And um, I, I think it is, in a way, the illusion of Angle's great illusion, which um, people like Mersheim were trying to guard against the notion that uh, uh, you can have economic interdependence without worrying about the political implications and without worrying about the political requirements of economic integ- integration such as the need for a state that can provide Kindleberg as functions of countercyclical lending and spending. Uh, when these things are forgotten, when the political economy is forgotten, then, uh, and economics and politics are taken to go their separate ways, I- instead of producing a utopia, this just produces greater clashes between the two logics and uh, an ultimately illusory uh, and deluded uh, domestic and foreign policy.
0: Yeah. There are some theorists who understand that classes matter. There are some theorists who understand that states matter and state competition matters. Mm. There's some theorists who understand that both of these things matter. Yeah. And there are some theorists who don't understand that either of them matter. Right.
1: Right. Right. Yeah.
0: I, I'd love to put all put put all, all of that in a in a matrix and organize everybody by that. I think that would be an interesting way of divvying up political theorists. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and as you but suggested- I think what a lot of people would find is that the history of political thought is full of theorists who understand that both states and classes matter. Yeah. It's recent political theory, which tends to elide one or the other or both.
1: And, and I guess um, it, there's a sense in which, um, as you've suggested, that these things form a cycle, that when there isn't that discipline of interstate competition, this opens up the class struggle uh, towards more intensive conflict. And so we go in this cycle between classes which compete over trade and states which compete more over war, though there's overlap between these two forms of competition, of course. Um, And by staying in this cycle, it seems hard to maintain any period of stability for long. Um, Plato argued everything mortal decays. And so any attempt to create peace through a balance of power or hegemony or whatever, whatever other strategy uh, seems expedient in the situation, uh, the stability is unlikely to last.
0: Yeah, I think that's very true. And I think a large part of the reason why that stability is unlikely to last is that all stability is somebody's stability, right? Every piece is somebody's piece. If you go through all those lists of pieces, you know, Pax Romana, Pax Americana, Pax Britannica, it's always somebody's piece, right? Mm. Yeah. And there are always some people for whom that piece isn't really their piece.
1: Mm. And
0: if it's not your piece, then you don't tend to have as much of a stake in it. And I think one of the things that we've learned is that people don't care, as Hobbes thought, exclusively about survival or or don't prioritize survival above other things.
1: Yeah. But of course, if it's not somebody's peace, then in the absence of kind of political integration, it's nobody's peace. There is a uh, great benefit to a hegemonic uh, distribution of power, because if there's a hegemon, they can provide that stability with some degree of reliability, but if it's a multipolar distribution, if it's everybody's peace, then there is a great risk that it will turn out to be uh, everyone's war quite soon after.
0: Right, right. Because if you don't have someone to pay the cost of maintaining the peace, then the peace will tend to collapse. Yeah. Right. But if you have someone who will pay the cost of maintaining the peace, that someone will also use the peace to bully everybody else. Mm. Right. Mm. So. It's a difficult. It's a difficult situation, yep. and I think a lot of theorists could also just be s- sorted in terms of theorists who care more about uh, peace than exploitation within a peaceful arrangement, right. and theorists who care more about exploitation than than peace. Because yeah. to have peace, you will tend to have stable exploitative arrangements, and to have uh, to, to challenge those exploitative arrangements is to risk the possibility of real conflict and therefore war.
1: Mm. Mm. all right i wonder whether it's possible to do both
0: yeah yeah can can you do both Yeah. that's too often people only ask can you do one or the other the answer is always well of course you can do one but you won't get the other yeah yeah Yeah. all right we're coming up on an hour and a half i think that was fun yeah it was uh, yeah we're gonna we're gonna wrap up for today thank you guys so much for listening it's good to be back we're gonna do these a little bit more regularly again now that Edmund is done with the year and back on the long summer vac. So we'll be back and we'll see you next time. Thanks so much for listening. Bye-bye.